our bodies can tolerate all sorts of things, right? They're incredibly resilient. So regardless of how much damage we do to them by not feeding them well or not sleeping enough, we still grow and we still flourish and we can still thrive. But at some point, and it's usually somewhere in your mid 40s to early 50s, there's a particular change that happens. There's a hormonal change for women. There's a hormonal change for men as well. During this time, this what we the what I call the start of the midlife phase, right? Your body's ability to absorb certain mic micronutrients will diminish, right? So we, the only vitamin we still make as humans really, the vitamin D from our skin, right? We have a vitamin D transporter in our skin and with light, we are able to make a little. That vitamin D transporter declines with age. So as we age, we need a little bit more vitamin D. We need a little bit more vitamin A. In our gut, the place where there's, a, there's just a small part of our intestines where we absorb vitamin B12. Some of those specialized cells with normal aging will also decline. So we need to supplement, and that can be through food, um, interestingly enough, we used to eat foods that gave us all those things. We exist because all the humans that existed before us managed to live long enough and healthy enough that we were here. But we really dramatically changed the way we eat. So we have to change our diets based on the fact that we're going to need more of certain micronutrients as we age. Welcome to This Is Aging, a podcast on a mission to explore the upside of getting older. We're your hosts, Dana Schultz and Melissa Reeves, two friends approaching midlife who are fed up with anti-aging culture and refuse to believe that life was all downhill after 40. We believe life can get better with age and we're here with the stories to prove it. Join us and our inspiring guests as we flip the aging narrative on its head and trade fear for curiosity and celebration. Hello friends, it's Melissa. I am really excited to share this episode. It is a treasure trove of information about nutrition and how things change as we age and different needs that we have that may also change. This is a conversation with an integrative neurologist who has a focus on nutrition. And I'm not going to say too much. I'm just going to say that it is an incredibly insightful, informative, and also deeply wise episode. We also talk about community and the different things that factor into our experience of aging and of our bodies and of our health that are aside from just our nutrition and the things that we take in. This is definitely one of those episodes where you should be ready to take some notes, which I did. And it's a great time to remind you, if you haven't already, since you are listening to this podcast as we speak, please take a moment to leave us a review as well as subscribe to the show if you haven't already. And please share with friends. I keep hearing from people how much of an impact these conversations have been having. And I wanted to share a recent review with you. This is exactly what I was hoping to find to help me rewire my own mind when it comes to aging. Why am I spending all my money to play along with this idea that I can't and won't age? Love, love, love. Thank you so much for that review. Again, if you haven't reviewed yet, please do so in your podcast app. Thank you so much. 
and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Rita. Welcome to today's show. We have a special guest today, Madarita Achari, also known as Dr. Rita. Um, she's been practicing neurology for more than 25 years in Houston, and she began her private practice in 2020 called Integrated Neurology, where she weaves her skills in clinical training with her nutrition expertise and Ayurveda, promoting holistic health for her patients. And we became aware of Dr. Achari and her work through our uh, another podcast guest, Karen Walron, the author of Radiant Rebellion. And um, we're really looking forward to learning from you today, Dr. Achari, about aging well through the lens of neurology and nutrition. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dana and Melissa. I'm really excited to be here. And uh, I hope that I will be of service and of use and good information to your audience. Great. Yeah. Well, can we just start by, if you're comfortable, telling us your age and how you're feeling right now about aging? I am 60, about to be 61 in a few months. Um, and I am feeling optimistic and renewed about aging. I spent a little bit of time the last few years, actually, during the pandemic, when we all had to sort of uh, re-engineer ourselves and our lives. Yeah. Um, I was, you know, I was in my late 50s. Uh, I had been in private practice with my father for 20 plus years. He was uh, no longer going to be practicing. I was opening a new phase of my life, a practice on my own. Pandemic hit. We had to re uh, sort of find a building, remodel a building, go to complete telemedicine. Um, how do we sort of create a healthy building for people to come into? Everything was new. Everything was different. And I found myself quite up to the task, you know, so every challenge that was presented uh, was something that I could learn new skills through. And it really, I mean, I came out of all of this very aware of the fact that this was a time in my life that because of how much experience I'd had being privileged to live this long, that I could use all that expertise and quickly adapt without feeling overwhelmed. Although I have to say I did feel overwhelmed multiple times. But, I'm sure. Um, and, and then the other thing that I realized was as I researched this, because I was curious because we were all reinventing ourselves, that people, the, some of the greatest discoveries, the majority of the greatest discoveries and contributions that people has made to the world whether it's literature, science, engineering, have been made in their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. And then I thought, okay, I just am experiencing what everyone before me has experienced. I just didn't realize it. So I'm, yeah, I'm hopeful about the future. Yeah, and that. you mentioned yeah, and feeling the impacted. was an incredibly confronting time for everyone. Overwhelm was basically a moment-by-moment -moment experience. So <laughs> props to you for starting a new practice and navigating that with courage. Yeah. Well, on that note, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to neurology? I know that your father or your mother was also a neurologist and how you got connected and wove nutrition into your practice as well. It's quite an interesting combination. Sure. Um, it has been an interesting journey. Um, I started life on the other side of the planet. I was born in India. 
And I was actually born, my grandfather was the town physician, right? So, and we, my mom was, my parents met in medical school. So I've sort of been in medicine and around medicine my whole life. And we moved to England and I, then we came to Houston and grew up with doctors and scientists all around me. But my actual, my identity during that time was not as a scientist or anything to do with science. I was actually a dancer and I did uh, ballet and different styles of Indian classical dance. And that's what art sort of drove me. But the science was always there. And I went to a university and I got a degree in uh, biochemistry and molecular biology. And um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to medical school or not, because it seemed like, well, I mean, that's the only thing I've thought about. So I tried to do something different. I did a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Art History with a concentration in cinematography. And I was thinking about film school or medical school. And what I realized as I was making several documentaries was that um, I love stories. That's what I love. I love getting to know people. I love and I want to know their stories with a camera in front of my face. Uh, people told me things. It was a very intimate process. People, I could ask a question and people would tell me all sorts of things they wouldn't have otherwise told me. And I realized the same thing happens when I have a white coat on. The only difference is with a white coat on, I can immediately be of service and help. Whereas if I was going to be a filmmaker, I was going to be begging for money for most of my life, for my <laughs> projects. But that sort of was what drove me to medical school. And it's, it's interesting when we're talking about aging and that as we are in different decades of our lives, whether how comfortable we feel in our skin, what we're trying to rebel against, what influences us. In medical school, I wanted to be a surgeon. I, I didn't want to be a neurologist because my father was a neurologist. And I, I really didn't want to have to deal with that. I wanted to do anything but. And I was good at neurosciences. And, and my classmates actually sort of uh, convinced me that I needed to get over my issues and go and do the thing I was good at. And so that's how I ended up in neurology. I have cooked my whole life. So I've been uh, able to sort of gather recipes from all the places that I've lived. And I live in Houston, which is uh, the most diverse city in the United States. And even in college, the graduate students would get together and share food. And I was always part of that. So food has been an interest and a passion of mine for a long time. I think Karen sort of uh, writes about it in Radiant Rebellion, that I actually was working and not taking care of myself and actually started to feel very poorly. And that's when I started to understand that I needed to feed myself well, and I needed to take care of myself so I could care for others. And that started my journey in sort of the local farmer and rancher movement. So I began to, you know, a little over 20 years ago, interact with those people in my community who raised our food and made our food. So local restaurants and the, the chefs in town who started our farm to table movement in Houston. So I was really fortunate that I was able to interact with all of those people. As I started my neurology practice in probably about 20 years ago, I started uh, with a patient of mine who had brain fog and numbness and tinkling and He'd been everywhere, including the three medical schools in my city, had gone to some specialized places, Mayo Clinic, 
and no one could figure out what was wrong with him. When he finally came to see me, I thought, well, obviously I'm not going to be able to add much, but I'll try, I'll look. And in our discussions, I asked him, have you done anything different? Because I couldn't find anything in the, in the medical record. So my question was, have you done anything different in the last six months before all these symptoms started? He said, no, I, I can't think of anything. And he called me back five minutes after we hung up and he said, I did one thing and that was that I started a gluten-free diet. And that gluten-free diet, so that restriction of nutrients, we restrict wheat in an effort to get rid of gluten, which is not great for us, but wheat and gluten are not the same thing. But what we discovered is by not eating gluten and, and eliminating all wheat and some other grains from his diet, his vitamin B1 was very, very low. And that was what was causing his issue. And that was my first experience with in American, contemporary America, where we've got calories and supplemented foods, all of a sudden by restricting our diets in an effort to become more healthy, right? We do these things in an effort to be better. He had eliminated things that were critical to his brain and bodily function. And so once I discovered that, and that was discovered through a very simple blood test, but I had to think about it. It's not something we do all the time. We found a great source of good wheat, a good easy bread recipe, some sourdough starter for him, and he baked bread. I gave him B1 injections, and within six months, he was back to normal. He baked me bread for about a year, and then I, <laughs> I lost track of him, but I, that's, no news is good news in this situation. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so that that's sort of how I got there. And then as I start to do this and, and more and more people sort of come, we I have started to check blood levels of micronutrients on many people. And the CDC, so our country, uh, we actually know that 50% of us are vitamin C deficient. And we've got lots of other nutritional deficiencies but it's just not something that we in medicine are trained to do. And it's not something we think about because we think we're in modern America. We should all be fine, but we're not. So that's how I got there. Yeah, that's one of our questions was how prevalent are nutritional deficiencies, right? It's not something that we hear about. We do hear about vitamin intake, but we hear more about macronutrients than micronutrients, right? How much protein you're getting carbs, fat, et cetera. So it's really fascinating to hear you tell that backstory. I, I think that um, we feel very much in this country that, well, we use meal replacement, right? We don't actually eat meals. We eat bars and powders. And I, I always think of them as an astronaut food, right? Tang was, and nobody <laughs> has Tang anymore. But in the old days, a lot of things were made and they were simplified because these were foods that were easy to take into space because you couldn't take fresh foods any into outer space. Um, and yet we've brought that down to our day-to-day -day culture. It does take, it takes time and effort and a certain kind of mindset to think about feeding ourselves as being the most important thing we do every day, feed and sleep and exercise, right? <laughs> and water. Um, but it, for some reason in our cultures, the thinking about it is also that it's an overwhelming, onerous task, right? So there are reasons that we have walked away from it. 
is when we are not eating live foods, we're not eating fresh things, we're not really getting the maximum nutritional uh, intake from them. So we don't think about fueling our bodies. And I, I wish we would, when we're thinking about eating, think about what are, you know, the, the act of eating should be fueling me every day. And we, we just don't think about it that way, I don't think. Yeah. Well, life can get busy and I, I'm guilty of it myself, just having a protein shake versus having a meal and it's just quick and easy. And I try hard not to make that the standard in my diet, but yeah, it can be challenging for folks who are really busy. It certainly is in my world in December. I mean, right through my, there's a door back there. That's my kitchen. We actually, it's a, our office has a, a working kitchen in it. But when I get super busy in December, you will find me at the sink over there eating tortilla chips and salsa at about nine o'clock at night because I just don't, don't have time for anything else. But the only thing I do is I make sure that the salsa is from my local Mexican restaurant where they make it every day. <laughs> so, <laughs> Some effort. That's my, one. So that's my yeah. single effort, right? But it, yeah. is, it is really true. And it's, you know, uh, the thing that I ask people to do is if there's any way you can add one little fresh thing to any any meal that you're eating, whether it's a sliced cucumber or red bell pepper or whatever you like. But sometimes we can't all do it. It's just not possible. Yeah. Do you advocate for any one type of eating for people or do you believe it varies person by person? I don't think that there is one diet that fits all. So each of us, we have different nutritional requirements based on our age, our activity level, our genetics, uh, based on our health conditions as both for young people, there are illnesses uh, like diabetes and other things that occur in young people, younger people. And then as we age, there may be other medical conditions that require us to lower our fat intake or our cholesterol intake. So I think all diets have to be personalized. I think Diets also have to be culturally relevant, and I think diets have to be delicious. So um, based on the things that people are doing, who they are, where their ancestral background comes from, I think each diet has to be very, very unique. But within each diet, if we can enhance what is healthier and reduce the things that are not as healthy, then I think we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, it brings up for me the reality that there are people in the world that have different access to food and to food quality than others of us do. And I know that that's a big conversation around what are sometimes called food deserts or things like that, where people just don't have access to much more than processed food and things like that that are really readily available everywhere. And uh, we can even see in different cultures that the proliferation of American fast food or American junk food has kind of spread to all corners of the world. And there's so the spectrum of experience with that is really big. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of defense. It's it's really tricky. And then I think there's this other component where so many people have experienced disordered eating in their life. So part of their healing journey may have been, and I can relate to this personally, may have been to, to be less rigid with their food intake, right? Less concerned about the nutrient profile of something that they're eating. 
And so I'm curious your take on that. Just keeping those factors and realities in mind, how do you balance that with the reality that we do need to take in certain kinds of food and certain kinds of nutrients to be healthy and to be well? Well, the your first uh, topic there, which is food deserts and access to good, nutritious food, is a, is a very serious problem. And it is a problem that becomes even more profound when we think about that the children are not being said well either in those areas. The, the food, I'm just going to call it the food industrial complex and the politicization of food, because it's what you're talking about. I mean, there are certain things where there are people who do not have access to any good food at all. And it is very difficult when you can get a McDonald's Happy Meal or a package of frozen chicken nuggets for a lot less than you can a good chicken and some vegetables, and it's more convenient to pop something in the oven. Um, how do you justify that? How can you, how do you get people who are unable to afford certain things? How do we make good food more accessible? I know how to do it. How do we get our institutions to do it? How do we get our politicians to do it? Um, in my ideal world, but physicians would be involved in this, right? Children in all schools should probably have gardens and learn how to raise their own food because that's actually cheaper, but it's very hard to get into that mindset. So access is a tough problem and cost of inexpensive good food. How do we do that? Um, it's a challenge. And I think it's something, I mean, you're talking about it here and it's a conversation that needs to be had and it needs to be had on a very serious, large scale level so we feed people properly. If we don't feed people well, if we don't feed children well in school, they're not going to learn, right? So that's the, they're from the basic, the future of society, we need to be doing this. The part about our relationships with food, um, our relationships with food, I believe, had been heavily influenced by the people who sell food, right? So everything, the commercials that we see, the magazine ads as to even now, you know, what's supposed to be on our Thanksgiving table with people, uh, companies selling their wares, which is food, and this is what we should be eating. We have to be mindful of that and maybe know that we're a little, we're manipulated the things are being curated for us. When I came, so when I was a, a young girl, I'm an immigrant family. I'm the eldest child of immigrant parents and my parents only knew how to cook fresh foods. And yet I remember whatever it was, tuna helper or Eggo waffles. Uh, I wanted those foods. Those were, I thought, well, that's what everybody's eating and I want to eat those things. And it's taken me this very long journey to go, oh, I, I, see, I see that on television all the time. And that's why I want it. So again, these relationships with food, I mean, we've been taught these things. We've been curated in this direction. And if we can be mindful of it, that I think that's the first thing is to realize that someone's been in our head <laughs> doing this. And we need to think about how we uncouple that. And it's not easy. There's so much is you know, wrapped up in food. Our emotions, our family traditions, our health, memories, Everything is right there. The brain has a huge amount of area 
where smell and taste and memory sit right next to each other, Mm -hmm. right? And feelings and food sit right next to each other. So we have to, I think, as I said, sort of always walk in grace in this, which is know our tendencies, but also know that there are influencers that we need to acknowledge and then maybe uncouple ourselves from them. Yeah. And these foods that you're talking about that are heavily advertised and used to really manipulate how we think about food, they're also very hyper palatable foods. And I do think that we see now in probably from the, for sure the 80s on, and maybe it's before and and you would know more than I do, but at least for sure from the 80s on, the proliferation of convenience foods that are really hyper palatable, such that kids, many kids in Western societies, haven't grown up eating much else and have developed a preference for those foods. And so it's a question of even coming back to the schools. I think it's really tricky. Jamie Oliver made a documentary some time back about really working with schools to completely overhaul the approach to food in America and not just America. I believe he's English. And there's been an incredible progress. I remember in Portland where we used to live, there was a garden to table program at the local elementary school and they worked hard to include fresh foods. But the kids, the school that my kids go to today, the menu is chicken nuggets on Monday, pizza on Tuesday, burgers on Wednesday, and so on and so forth. And it would be challenging to reintroduce more fresh foods in that setting because that is what is normal. And that is what the palate has developed to like. Yes. And that is, you know, these are the new normal, right? This is, this wasn't this way, but it has become this way. And I I love that term palatable because our palates are curated. If you take our food and introduce it and have what our children eat here and some of the processed foods that we eat here in school, and you give it to, uh, I'll just, I was in France two years ago and I looked at these beautiful lunches that these children had versus what we had. And things register as too sweet or too fatty or too salty. But for us, we have been curated on all these foods, right? In my practice, I am not an anti-meat practice, right? But I like for people who need good animal protein in their diets, I ask people to eat fully grass-fed meats. And the problem with fully grass-fed meats is that the good part is that the fat looks like olive oil and acts like olive oil. It's a monohydrogenated fat. But since it's not a thick fat, we in the United States don't like it. It tastes weird to us, right? It's not a creamy steak kind of of feeling. So we take animals that are grass-fed and then we grain finish them in the last few months of their life. And now the fat becomes more saturated, right? Farmers have done all this work and then we like the saturated fat. So even in not hyper-processed foods, even in the elemental foods, we are curated. Our taste buds, our texture, everything has been curated for commercially processed and commercially created foods. And it, again, uh, as human beings, we're born not knowing anything, right? Everything about us is something that we learn. 
And I, I'll just give this example. I have a, a gentleman who I see, he's in his 80s. He uh, takes care of his grandchildren. But because they've been talking about um, Friday is donut day, and he used to buy his, each of his grandchildren a donut, but his grandson only ate half his donut. He said, I realize I probably shouldn't have this much sugar, but it's taken eight years of talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. And then now there it is, right? But we all come to this in different ways. And I think that kitchen garden, right, is something we, any of us can do, but it just takes time. And getting children to eat differently is uh, problematic, but I think Jamie Oliver did a really good job. <laughs> I, I love that documentary. My own nephew came to visit me. He was probably about seven at the time. And he said, well, Aunt Rita, I'd like some pancakes. And I'm like, okay. So I open the refrigerator and I'm getting some eggs out and I go get the flour, I get baking soda. And he's like, no, no, you're doing it all wrong. He said, what are you talking about? He said, no, no, where's your pancakes? So he opens up my refrigerator and he goes, where's the can that says Bisquick? So you just, I'm like, what do you think is in that can? It's all in this stuff. So it's very interesting. That was our first conversation he didn't know really what a whole tomato looked like. Uh, we went through, just like Jamie Oliver did, and we went through, do you know what this is? And now he actually manages a line of food stores. Wow. <laughs> and he is, I, so I think maybe, I don't know whether those conversations had anything to do with it, but he eats well, he's concerned about food. And it. I just always think back to that. And I don't know that I would have, even understood that children don't know what a vegetable is or what it looks like. I try to walk the walk. So I have a garden outside of my house. Uh, there's an outside fence so that when children walk past the sidewalk, they can see currently some eggplant and some okra and some peppers growing. And I, if I'm out there gardening, I offer them some. And so you they can, can know what, but it's, it's a huge amount of education and we're just not, we're not doing it. So it's got to start somewhere. And so I just try to do my little bit. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of uh, frantic mornings before school as a young person heating up a toaster strudel. And my sister and I would secretly sneak the two, two packets of icing for one. And so at the end of the box, one of the toaster strudels would be plain with no frosting and we would just lose it and it was a fight would erupt like no other. But I, I was also in, a, in an era of hyper palatable convenience foods raised on those types of things. I'm amazed that I am a relatively healthy person at this age, stage in my life because I was, for the most part, set a fed, or a fed a steady diet of convenience foods. And thankfully, I've developed a passion for nutrition and an interest in cooking. And those things have served me well. And I start to get a little bit anxious when I'm traveling and I can't cook for myself because I feel like I've lost that connection to my food. It also makes me think about how our soil quality has diminished so much. And even if you are a person who's privileged enough to live near a decent grocery store, I've even tasted the difference in the produce that I'm getting at high quality grocery stores. I tasted bell pepper. It doesn't really taste like anything. I have to guess and make the connection. That's probably not, it doesn't embody or have the same nutrient profile as maybe a bell pepper from 50 years ago. And I'm curious if there are certain common micronutrient deficiencies that you check for in modern patients 
just because of the way the world is, the way our soil is degrading, and that even if we're trying our best, we're probably going to come up short. That's true. And so I'm going to say something, and I, I, the, I don't want anyone to hyperventilate or become discouraged or anxious, right? Thanks for the warning. Uh, <laughs> the trigger warning. Because it, it, seems, it just seems so overwhelming, right? So grocery stores have changed a great deal in the last 40 to 50 years. You, so while there are a lot more varieties available, the varieties that are available to us are things that can be cold stored for a very long time, right? So Brussels sprouts are having their day in the sun because they hang around a long time and broccoli as well. But the idea of seasonal produce is something that the grocery store embraces occasionally, right? So there are things that cannot be stored well. So cherries, you don't get all year round. Peaches, you don't get all year round. Plum. So the, the thing that I talk about in grocery stores is look for the things that aren't always there, right? Because that means they can't cold store them forever, right? So there's a seasonality even in the grocery store. Um, but again, an apple in a grocery store in any store, whether you're going to the highest end or the lowest end grocery store, an apple is cold stored an average of nine to 12 months before we eat it, before we get it. So that wow. means the nutritional content, the vitamin C in that apple is almost nothing. We have only one kind of banana that is available to us in American grocery stores. There are several hundred types of bananas. The Central America only grows the ones that we can ship and store the longest, right? So even when we're going to the grocery store, there's only one kind of green bean. When we talk about green beans and people tell me, oh, I don't like green beans. I'm like, well, what kind of green bean do you not like? I was at a farmer's market in, uh, in California a few weekends ago, and there were 15 different kinds of green beans sitting there, all different colors, right? But we only have a blue lake green bean. We have usually one kind of plum, We've got lots of the apples now, which is kind of nice. But so cold storage of foods in grocery stores, by definition, will reduce the amount of certain micronutrients, not everything, but vitamin C. And I think that's why we're seeing that 50% vitamin C deficiency mark. We no longer drink fat milks. Everything's fat-free and you can't absorb fat-soluble vitamins A and D, which are in dairy and good for us. You can't absorb them without fat. So we're losing the ability of, to by altering foods. There's no doubt that the commercial, the sort of big farm system, the soil is being degraded. We're using lots of chemical fertilizers. We're growing things fast. They get the produce is getting large very fast. And so that's not allowing the produce to develop all of its micronutrient. Um, so the soil, the rapidity of how we do things, the amount of time it has to spend on the shelf or usually in a cooler before you get it. All of these things reduce the nutrition and everything that we're eating. But again, there are ways that we can work around it, right? So we can, eating seasonally is a good thing if you can do that. If there's a farmer's market in your area to visit the farmer's market, and again, eating seasonally is really important. If you don't have a farmer's market, if you've got 
place to grow just a little pot of herbs and lettuces, right? Those are simple things that are fast to grow, easy to grow. You can grow a little patio tomato. I find children love patio tomatoes because they can grow them. You can grow beans, right? Bush beans. And it seems like a big chore, but actually it's fun to watch things grow. So there are ways to do it that way. Um, we do have now some companies. There's, I think there's a company that will ship imperfect foods to you, right? So the produce that may not look beautiful, but is still really good, those can be shipped and those are at a, at a slightly lower price point. There are things that maintain all their nutrition, right? So carrots and inexpensive things at the grocery store, squashes, hard squashes this time of year are incredibly nutritious. So there are many things you can still find at the grocery store that are good for you. And if you can shop, think about what's in season for me where I am, right? What's the thing in my grocery store I, I don't always buy and I always buy those things, right? So that is one way to get around what is being done in terms of soil, in terms of lots of fertilizers that make things grow too large too fast, right? We've got these giant chickens in the United States. Who knows what is happening to them, but no chicken breast should weigh three pounds. That's just not right. <laughs> yeah, or a blueberry the size of a mug. Just isn't quite right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So yeah, I think that the story that I'll tell is that my husband uh, loves broccoli. And all of us did. I would go to the grocery store and, and get everything. And then when we started shopping at our local farmer's market, broccoli season in Houston, where I am, is it starts off in January. And we're pretty good till about April because we've got pretty long growing season. And so we were eating broccoli all the time and it was great. And then broccoli went away. And then somewhere in July, he saw some broccoli and he said, I'd really like some broccoli. I'm like, OK, fine. And we went home, we cooked the broccoli. And I remember him saying to me, why doesn't this taste good? It doesn't taste like the fresh, sweet broccoli. It just didn't have any taste. And I said, it's not broccoli time. So next April, even my husband will say, is it time for this yet? Is it the season for this? No. So right now we're eating plums and pears and we're getting pomegranates here and persimmons. So all pea fruits are, that's what's our basket right now. Yeah, love that. Can you talk a little bit about how nutrition needs change as we age? And I understand from what you shared earlier that there are different, there are a lot of different factors, right? It's not going to be just age. It may be medical condition, genetics, et cetera, et cetera. But what are some basic things to be thinking about that do change as we age and how to eat to support that? Um as we age, so if uh, human bodies are amazing, you talked about the fact that you were, Dana, that you were on a processed food diet as a younger person, and but you're still incredibly healthy and doing well. It, it's amazing. Our bodies can tolerate all sorts of things, right? They're incredibly resilient. So regardless of how much damage we do to them by not feeding them well or not sleeping enough, we still grow and we still flourish and we can still thrive. But at some point, and it's usually somewhere in your mid-40s to early 50s, there's a particular change that happens. There's a hormonal change for women. There's a hormonal change for men as well. During this time, this, what, we, the what I call the start of the midlife phase, right, your body's 
ability to absorb certain micronutrients will diminish, right? So we, the only vitamin we still make as humans really, vitamin D from our skin, right? We have a vitamin D transporter in our skin and with light, we are able to make a little. That vitamin D transporter declines with age. So as we age, we need a little bit more vitamin D. We need a little bit more vitamin A, right? In our guts, the place where there's a there's just a small part of our intestines where we absorb vitamin B12. Some of those specialized cells with normal aging will also decline. So Knowing that we need a little bit more in the way of B12, we need some more C, we need some more D, we need some more A. So we're, we need to supplement, and that can be through food. We have to be mindful. Um, interestingly enough, we used to eat foods that gave us all those things. We used to eat dinky fishes like sardines and mackerel, and we don't eat those things anymore. Um, Clams. People wonder, well, clams are actually an amazingly rich source of vitamin B12. I didn't know that till recently. When someone was talking about clam dip as being part of many Friday night dinners. So the ways that we have eaten previously, right? We exist because all the humans that existed before us managed to live long enough and healthy enough that we were here. But we've really dramatically changed the way we eat. So we have to change our diets based on the fact that we're going to need more of certain micronutrients as we age, right? And in my younger days, if you went to the doctor and you weren't feeling well, the first thing that happened is your doctor gave you a B12 shot because the most common problem at that time is that you probably were B12 deficient and most people felt really well after that. Now we go to uh, drip spas to get B12s and all of these things. But that they used to be just considered a normal part of aging. So if you're tired, everybody got a B12 shot. So we lose things with aging and that's normal. Um, other than you mentioned maybe sardines, mackerel, clams, are there other nutrient-dense foods that we can add to our diet as we age to ensure we aren't running into nutrient deficiencies? Yeah. So I will start with one of the simplest and easiest to process things, which is dairy. Dairy means cow's milk, sheep's milk, goat's milk. One of the reasons that people are no longer able to tolerate cow's milk is actually all dairy is that we go through a process of ultra pasteurization. So um, all of these lovely starting ingredients apart then processed in to, and exposed to such high heat that the normal enzymes in them, that humans have been able to consume them because of these enzymes, right? It, these are self-contained foods. They are live foods. So dairy has been sort of, it can, it can live your, in your refrigerator for three months. That should make you very suspicious, right? Why can the milk be there? Shouldn't <laughs> be there. Milk used to show up in little bottles and you ordered only what you needed for two days and then the milkman brought more because otherwise the next you'd get soured milk and then you would get, so milk is a fresh food. So what I would say is dairy using low temperature pasteurized. It's sad that I have to use the term low temperature because pasteurization is low temperature, but they are available. 
So in uh, Kelowna is a low temperature pasteurized milk and every state and city has some low temperature pasteurized milks. So, uh, and I'm not a, a fan of raw milk because they're just, it's too high a risk for a lot of people because of the possible bacterial infections. But low temperature pasteurized milk, so dairy in the form of yogurt, cheese, um, uh, cottage cheeses, any uh, buttermilk, butter, which is a pasteurized bit of fermented food. So dairy is excellent. Eggs are an excellent source. Again, fully pasteurized eggs. The egg whites have uh, excellent high protein, easy to break down. And then egg yolks contain choline, biotin, many other things that are really important. So dairy and eggs, whole grains, so vitamin B1, B2, niacin, many things come in whole grains. We want to also think about grains being fermented, right? Because that helps support, we haven't talked about it, our gut microbiome. There's a connection between the bacteria that populate our gut, that break everything down in our brains, but all over our bodies. It's the, those bacteria are very helpful and you want to promote that. Um, dark green leafy vegetables are incredibly important. They have iron, they have vitamin C, they have vitamin A. So there's a Swiss chard, which is a pretty neutral green. I find most people like it. And the beautiful rainbow chard with all the different colors are helpful. Um, and then carrots, we talked about carrots and hard squashes, things that are sweet potatoes that are orange. I mean, you want that idea of eating the rainbow is very important. And I would say fish, wild caught, oily fish. You don't have to love salmon. All There are other kinds of fish. So fish twice a week, just a small, you don't need to have a giant amount. Two to three ounces of fish, two to three ounces of a good lean, again, grass-fed meat or pasture-raised meat. So lamb, pork, uh, venison for some people, any of these things, small quantities every day. Those are the big things. So I think that's, yeah, we've talked about um, greens. We've talked about dairy. We've talked about grain. We've talked about meat and we've talked about fishes. So those are the big ones. Yeah. I personally, when I'm trying to eat seasonally, going to the grocery store and just trying to buy a variety of colorful seasonal produce usually sets me on the right track. I know if I've only eaten brown and orange that week, I probably didn't do a very good job. So, and it's also fun. It makes your food very beautiful. And like you said, pomegranates are coming into season now. I just bought some of those and it makes your food so much more exciting. And I'm actually curious if there are certain foods that contribute to our brain health as well, if there's anything in particular that you recommend. I think, well, so I left off a couple of things and those are nuts and beans. So legumes, um, those are, are really healthy for our brains. Uh, and again, a wide variety. So things like Brazil nuts are very high in selenium. So you shouldn't eat too many of them. So a little of a variety of different nuts will get you a nice amount of good fats and different kinds of minerals. And you nuts, again, self-contained food, protein, fat, carbohydrate, all in one little package. But the critical thing is to have a variety, right? Don't just do one all the time because you're limiting yourself. So the wider the variety, uh, the more micronutrients you're going to get. But nuts are great and everything that we talked about. So that entire group, there's no one single 
brain food. I know that there's a lot written. There's a anti-Alzheimer's cookbooks and uh, it's really what is culturally and palatably good for you. Just enhancing that, making sure that it's balanced, making sure there's a wide variety. And in your case, as you are saying, all those colors. So coming back a little bit to the way things change as we age and specifically the 40s and 50s is perimenopause time. What do you think about protein intake as something that is such a prevalent part of the conversation as women enter this time and they're thinking about preventing bone loss and supporting changing hormones, all of these things? What do you think is, in in a general sense, a way to think about protein intake in terms of where we get the protein, how much of it we need? Yeah, the there are uh, classes of protein, right? So there's first class, second class, third class protein. And so the easiest, most efficient way for the body to get protein are through animal sources. So um, eggs, dairy, and meats are our richest and easiest to use protein sources for the body. There are proteins available in legumes and in peas and a variety of other things for people who cannot or choose not to uh, eat meats or dairy for reasons that they can't consume them. So there are other choices, but we have to know that those are not the easiest to assimilate. You have to have much larger quantities of second and third class proteins for your body to actually make them. The other thing is certain things, beans, for instance, you have to eat them in combination, beans and rice, corn with certain squashes to get all of the nucleic acids to then make other proteins, right? So you can do that in a vegetarian diet, but you have to be super mindful and combinations are key. If we look to our ancient cultures, they will tell us, right, almost everywhere in the world, beans are always eaten with rice, right? Beans are eaten mm-hmm. with a grain because then you can make what you need from that. I think that for so women, interesting. It, it is that for women who, actually women and men, as we're going into our 40s and 50s, our hormones are creating big changes in our bodies. For women and men, when there's hair that's thinning, uh, that's a an idea that you need to have a little bit more iron and a little bit more protein. And that's not true for everybody. I'll share my own story. My hair, when I got into my 50s, was thinning and falling out. And I I was at my dermatologist's office and she said, well, you need to add more protein. So I love vegetables. So I added a little more dairy. And she said, no, no, you need to eat animal protein. So I added a few eggs. And she goes, no, you need meat, fish, or something like that. And surprisingly, Now, I will go weeks because I'm so imperfect at this. I will go weeks where I don't eat any red meat and I can see the quality of my hair changing. And then the moment I go back to adding a little bit of red meat back into my diet, then now my hair is better quality. But I think making sure that several times a week you are getting some easy to assimilate protein and the easiest ones are eggs, dairy, and animal protein. And if you can't do that, then combinations of chickpeas with rice, lentils with squash, making sure that you're getting good combinations of food. And there there are lots of dishes all over the world that just do that for you. So it, yep. it's possible, but you do need to up your protein. Yeah. 
Thank you. That's super helpful. <laughs> yeah. I I love how you just said that if you look at traditional cultures around the world and at the recipes that come out of those cultures, they contain the, all the secrets we're looking for. There are plenty of bean and rice recipes from lots of places around the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're, and they're yeah. yeah, they are really, really delicious. And so I think you can do that. You talked about, we've talked a little bit about nutrition as we age and you asked about bone health. And um, so again, dairy is so important for bone health and dairy combined with uh, resistance exercises. And walking is like the best thing that you can do for your bone health because when you strike that heel strike on the ground, you're remineralizing everything from your the bones in your legs and your hips through your spinal column and up. And one of the great advantages of walking is that if you can walk a minimum of 30 minutes continuously, the heart doesn't care. The heart, you can walk five minutes, you can do five minutes of exercise at a time, and the heart is really happy. The brain likes a continuous 30 minutes of even moderate intensity. It doesn't have to be super high intensity, but the idea of continuously doing something for 30 minutes without stopping actually improves the blood flow to the brain and helps all brain function. And that 30 minutes is good for your bones and your muscles and everything as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a critical part of aging is that we move continuously for 30 minutes a day. There's a lot of data. The 10,000 steps is completely arbitrary, right? They came up with the 10,000 steps because it was the right it sounds Japanese right. character. Well, it was the actual was the character that okay. looked nice. And that's how we got to 10,000. So it doesn't have to be 10,000. It can be 7,000. But it, the critical part is the time, right? 30 minutes. If you can just do 30 minutes. I'm sitting at my desk right now. Underneath my desk is a little seated elliptical. So when I sit and I'm doing charts at the end of my day and when we had 120 degrees outside, I just every day for 30 minutes when I sit here, I just pedal. And it's not even something I have to stop my work to do. So I try to, again, what is my barrier to success? How do I overcome that? And everybody's got a different way that they live their lives. And so figure out how to do that. And if you can, you know, I used to... In the evenings, people come over for coffee or I would just take that time to go walk with my friends, right? I, so, and all of a sudden we had 10 women walking outside in the evening, just around the neighborhood. And we got all of our, our, all of our venting and gossiping and advice in, and we'd exercised in the meantime. We can build connection and still move. Yeah, and there's a lot of research about that related to our health and our longevity, having that connection with other people and not just doing things like movement in isolation. Yeah, that is a it's a critical part of healthy aging is to have connection and to have daily interactions with people. It, it's an interesting thing that there was a study done on cultures that keep their memories for a very long time. And what American science came away with, it was turmeric in their cooking. And then isolated from turmeric is something called curcumin. And that was, you know, tried in clinical trials. But people didn't really keep their memories that much longer just doing that. The 
th there was a basic fallacy because turmeric has to be bloomed in oil and you have to cook with it. You can't just take it in a powder. You're mm -hmm. not getting the good stuff. But what we missed even more importantly was that in these cultures, people would go outside and they would talk with their neighbors and they would go to the, the flower shop and they would go get their bread and go to the market. And everyone's talking every day and people would say, oh, how's your nephew? How's your grandson? You can ask, did so-and-so enjoy the, the book that they were reading? So all of that, those small conversations and all of that data being kept in the brain is very important. It helps preserve our memories. And so that connectedness, eating meals together, having that time together to have a conversation and then continue that conversation a couple of days later, right? You're keeping track of things. And we just don't do that when we are disconnected from each other. Yeah. One of my favorite yeah. daily practices is I walk my dogs in the morning and someone suggested to me a few years ago to, instead of immediately plug myself into the news or a podcast, just go headphone free and breathe and listen to the sounds in my neighborhood and hear the birds chirping. And then I'm more prone to stop and say hi to a neighbor who's also walking their animal. And I end up having generally relatively short conversations, but sometimes really meaningful conversations with people that I live blocks away from. And it's it really does make me feel like a more connected, grounded human being. And I know that even though we forget sometimes why we do these things, which this conversation has been a wonderful reminder of all those little things that we know we're supposed to do, but we forget why, those things are contributing to my longevity and that it also just happens to make me happy. You have said something that has reminded me. So when you walk and you listen to birdsong, right, an amazing thing happens. So the human ear canal is the thing that it's perfectly tuned to is birdsong. The harmonics of that, that's the oh. one thing. And I think, again, evolutionarily, uh, we probably followed birds. Birds watched us. Maybe the birds ate berries and we knew that they were okay. I don't know what happened tens of thousands of years ago, but just that act of being outside, whether it's in the middle of the day and you see a beautiful sky at sunrise, at sunset, and then hearing the birds. So that first daybreak, when you hear the birds, it is known for many cultures, and we're, I talk a little bit about Ayurveda and Chinese traditional cultures, that that helps uplift everything about us, just that bird song. And we, we think about it, and you just said it made you happy. And it, it does. It does exactly that. It goes to the areas of the brain where our mood is elevated. So things in nature, we are part of nature. We are part of this earth. And so that's that first level of connection then to the creatures and then to each other. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, when you can stop and understand we do these things automatically, but sometimes we forget to do them, but they're really nurturing. Well, that feels to me like a really beautiful place to end. I love the tie-in with nature. And is there anything before we leave, uh, Dr. Rita, that feels important to share either from a nutrition perspective or just a personal reflection on aging well? Um, life is a journey. And sometimes the road is smooth and sometimes it's very bumpy. And there are times where we have everything perfectly done. We're eating well and exercising and sleeping and 
have being connected and talking to people, and then something happens and you get thrown off the road, right? It's really important to get right back up and try again. So there is never a time where things are not repairable. You can mm-hmm. always move forward, always try again, do the best you can. Every day will not be perfect, but hopefully you'll get the next day to try again. And so I really uh, want to make sure that we all know that in these pursuits, um, there is the goal is good health. It's not perfection. And you just try every day. Some days are going to be great. Others are not. Forgive yourself those and keep moving forward. Hmm. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. You're very relevant to, today yes. to me as well. Well, where can people Absolutely. find you and continue to learn from you or work with you in person if they happen to live in the Houston area? Sure. My medical practice, so I'm in the state of Texas, and that is, you can find me at integratedneurology.com. We do have, I have a nutritional neurology institute where we can do micronutrient testing, and I am happy to consult about diets and lifestyles and benefit from that, which is not part of the medical practice. So I am where I'm available to do that. And um, so those those are the two places, but you can find me through my practice at integratedneurology.com. And hopefully in the next couple of years, there may be a, a little book just to summarize the things that I have learned that may be helpful. Yeah. So the, forward to reading that. The, the work that you're talking about can be done outside of Texas. So someone could work with you if they live anywhere in the world. Yes. The Nutritional yes. Neurology Institute, yeah. which has nothing to do with the medical practice, we can, I can, uh, we can check micronutrient levels anywhere in the world and make consultations and adjustments for anyone anywhere. Wonderful. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was so lovely to meet you in person and I learned so much. <laughs> I'm also inspired by your words of wisdom there at the end as well. So thanks so much for your time and your wisdom. Well, thank you both for giving me this opportunity. It's been so much fun to see you both, to meet you both. And I'm really excited uh, to listen to this podcast and also get my my patients listening to it so we can all thank you. You know, age gracefully and longer. Thank you so much for listening to This Is Aging. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share with others and leave a rating and review for us in iTunes or Spotify. You can also subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on all the social platforms at This Is Aging. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Please note the information shared in this episode is for educational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice or consultation with a healthcare professional. In this episode, we may share links and references to products and services that may enable us to receive compensation from referrals or sales. This is Aging only recommends